0: This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. This is a story about
1: a mother's deep love for her son, her heartbreak when he's brutally killed, and her transformation from a quiet mother who just wanted grandkids and was looking forward to her only son's wedding and becoming
0: overnight an activist. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world, interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories, behind the stories. Author Paula Yu's book, From a Whisper to a Rallying Cry, has a huge list of awards, including being long listed for a 2021 National Book Award. It's about the 1982 murder of Asian American Vincent Chin in Detroit, but it's really about the civil rights movement started by his death and how it galvanized so many people. Let's start with where we are in time and where we are in the country, and then we'll talk about Vincent. So this is 1982 Detroit. Yes, this is 1982 Detroit,
1: and it's happening in the middle of a recession. We're in our second oil crisis. Gas prices are skyrocketing, and Michigan is home to the big three at the time. GM, Ford, and Chrysler. There's a reason why we call Detroit Motor City. It's the birthplace of Henry Ford. It's one of the the cradles of industry in America. And in 1982, because of gas prices, the oil crisis and the recession, American car companies are still making what we call gas guzzlers. You know, your grandpa's huge station wagon. It takes a lot of gas to fill up that tank. And at the time, there were these newer Japanese import car companies called Oh, something called Toyota, Honda, Datsun. (laughs) Hmm, I think they have a good future in front of them. They're making smaller, more fuel efficient cars. So because of that, Americans are buying more and more Japanese import cars and basically just any import car from any country that is more fuel efficient. So as a result, there were hundreds of thousands of layoffs happening across Michigan and across the country in the American auto industry because we were still making the same car and we couldn't compete. So there was a lot of unemployment, a lot of anger. And what happened with that was politicians and the auto industry started pointing fingers. They needed to scapegoat someone. So there was a noticeable increase in anti-Japanese and ultimately anti-Asian sentiment because of this. And I know what I'm saying happened in 1982. That was 40 years ago. But when you think about it, doesn't this ring a bell? Yeah. Let's talk about China virus, Kung flu, what's happening today with the pandemic, with the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic, the similarities between the spike in anti-Asian racism and hate crimes set against the backdrop of a recession a spike in gas prices and people looking to point the finger and unfairly scapegoat another country that happens to be Asian, which then spills into hate crimes against Americans of Asian descent. It's hauntingly disturbing and very similar, the parallels. It's almost like history is, as they say, repeating itself.
0: This is Reagan in the White House? Yes. Okay. Did Asian Americans have any kind of political power at all in 1982?
1: Not really. Okay. I think also one of the problems in the 1980s was that the ACLU actually said that the civil rights at that time did not apply to Asian Americans. We were considered not protected by it because when you talk about race, especially in the early 1980s, the dialogue was only for white and black. Hmm. Asian Americans were not given a seat at the table to talk about racism. It did not allegedly exist for us, even though... We had the Chinatown Massacre. We had the illegal incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. Many, many examples of anti-Asian hate. We have also laws, the Chinese Exclusion Act, how the Chinese laborers were mistreated in the building of the railroad. But yet, despite all that evidence, in 1982, we didn't have much political power. We were kind of invisible and we didn't really exist in the political and racial landscape of the time. And that's something that we're still struggling with today and we're still fighting against. Have things improved? A little bit. But we've got a long way to go.
0: Well, let's talk about Vincent Chin for a little bit. Tell me about him. Vincent
1: Chin was born in 1955 in China. And he's actually, one thing that people don't know about him is that he was adopted. His parents could not have a baby. So they... Looked to adopt internationally. And I remember I read an interview where Lily Chin said the minute she saw Vincent's photo as a child, his smile, his eyes spoke, it was as if he was looking directly at her soul. And so she said, we're adopting him. And he came to America when he was six years old and he grew up in Michigan, just outside of Detroit with his family. His parents worked various hard labor jobs. They worked in a laundry. They washed dishes. They worked very blue-collar jobs. And he was an all-American boy, just an all-American kid. He played football. He played tag. He even learned the violin in the school orchestra. And his favorite thing to do was to read. When he was a little kid, and even when he was a young adult, his lifelong bookworm, he was also not a shy bookworm. Very popular. His friends told me, and in interviews and in my research, He was the kind of person that the minute he met you, you were his best friend. He would engage you with open arms, very gregarious, very talkative, had a great sense of humor. And uh, he worked hard, but he partied hard. And so that kind of was his personality in a nutshell.
0: So Vincent and his family are from China. Even though he's all American, his mother Lily isn't. She came out here as a young bride in 1948.
1: And her father actually said, your great-grandfather had a terrible time building the railroads. You should not go to America. But she said, it was different back then. Things are different now. And she had such a hope and love for America when she came here. And her heart was broken when the white children in her neighborhood, and she loved children. Remember, she was trying to have a baby. She loved children. She would smile and wave at the children riding their bikes past her house. And in return, They would make fun of her. They would pull their eyes back in an exaggerated slanted motion and make faces at her. And she realized the children and the families on her street did not think she was equal. And then there was a moment where her husband took her to a Detroit Tigers game. You can't get any more American than that. They went to Tiger Stadium and the people around them, all the white people were very upset that they were sitting there and they started saying terrible things and making them uncomfortable and feeling unsafe. It was the only baseball game they went to and they had to leave because they felt threatened. So Vincent's growing up with his mother's terrible experiences, but for Vincent, because he's a younger generation and he had diverse friends, not just Chinese American friends, but friends of different races, he got along with everybody. Mm -hmm. He actually was the hope of future Asian American youth generation that were not going to have the same difficulty as their parents did, as their grandparents did, because they were assimilating more in America. They spoke fluent English. They played football. They were all American kids. So there was a hope for his generation because Lily and Vincent Chin's father, they worked hard and sacrificed and suffered so their kids could have a better life. And we're starting to see that with Vincent right before his life is tragically cut short.
0: I'm assuming, though, that Lily is always worried about Vincent, in Detroit especially. Lily was very
1: worried for her son's safety all the time. By the early 1980s, Detroit had a horrible nickname. It went from Motor City to Murder City. It was known as the murder capital of America, because at that time in the early 1980s, Detroit had one of the highest homicide rates in the country. So, of course, it wasn't the safest place to be. And on the night Vincent was killed, he was at home. His mom was feeding him some food and he got out of work early. He was waiting tables part time on the weekends while also juggling his first new job as a draftsman at an engineering firm. And he's working two jobs because he's trying to save as much money because he wants to buy a house so his fiance, Vicky Wong, and his mom can move in. And on June 19th, 1982, the car honks outside and it's his three best friends, Gary, Bob and Jimmy. And they decided at the last minute, because Vincent got off his Saturday night shift at the Golden Star Chinese restaurant, he impulsively decided, hey! I'm getting married in 10 days. I completely forgot to organize a bachelor party. This is the last Saturday night that I can have a night out with the guys. So he impulsively said, I'm going to go home, see my mom, come on over, pick me up, and we'll go bar hopping. We're going to have a night out on the town. And his mother said, what are you doing? You're getting married in 10 days. You can't be going out like this. And Vincent laughed and told his mom, he said, mom, don't worry. It's just a night out with the guys. I promise I will be home early. It's a last night out with the guys before I get married. And right then and there, Lily got upset. And she said, don't say last time. That's bad luck. And she had a jade necklace. In Chinese culture, jade is considered a symbol of protection. And she took off her necklace and put it around her son's neck. And she said, this is for your protection. And I think one of the last words he said to her was, don't worry, mom. I'll be home early and he left.
0: Where do he and Gary and Bob and Jimmy go? Go to a lot of uh, what we call today
1: adult entertainment nightclubs. Back in the 80s, you know, strip clubs. So they're going to bars and they end up at the Fancy Pants Club and it had a catwalk and there were dancers and that's where they ended up. That was the last club on their long night of having fun. That was the last place that they ended up that night.
0: Would the Fancy Pants Club traditionally be a safe place for Asian American men to go? Or were there segregated clubs, adult entertainment clubs, you think?
1: That's a really good question. And to my knowledge, the clientele at the Fancy Pants Club was pretty diverse. It was black and white, a lot of auto workers just wanting to take a, a stressful day at the factory, at the auto assembly line, go there, have a good time before they go home. So as far as I know, I don't think there was any problems. And one reason why I say that was one of the dancers who testified said that he had been there before. Vincent Chin had been to the Fancy Pants Club before, so they knew him and they said he was always a really nice young man. And so obviously, because he was a return customer, I don't think he had any problems when he went there.
0: So Vincent and his three friends go to the Fancy Pants and they hang out and they get some drinks and look at the girls and all of that. When do things start to go badly for Vincent?
1: They are having a great time. He had like $400 in cash to tip the dancers. So he was very popular that night. Later in the evening, Ronald Evans and his stepson, Michael Nitz, they were actually driving to Tiger Stadium because the Milwaukee Brewers were playing the Detroit Tigers. And as they were driving, they heard on the radio, it was a blowout. At the time, the Milwaukee Brewers were killing the Detroit Tigers like 10 to 3. And so they were like, okay, let's just go home. They both played in an amateur baseball league. And in fact, Michael Nitz was a talented young athlete in high school. He played on the baseball team. So that's why they actually had a baseball bat in the trunk because they would go to batting practice. They would go to baseball games. As they're driving home, Ronald even sees the Fancy Pants Club and he says, oh, I've heard about that place. Maybe we'll go there. Because he he was having a good bonding night with his stepson. So they end up going to the Fancy Pants Club. They sit across the way. And they're there. And then in the evening, Vincent and his friends are having a blast. And then they start to hear words from across the way because people on the other side of the catwalk were getting a little upset that all the dancers were not going to them because they're going to Vincent because he's flushed with cash. And then his friends testified in court that they started to hear anti-Asian racist slurs. Mm -hmm. And one of the dancers, Racine Colwell, would later testify in court that Ronald Ebens allegedly said, it's because of you little motherfuckers that we're out of work. So now what is probably just disgruntled customers, now it's crossed a line, it's become racist. And against the backdrop of increased anti-Japanese and anti-Asian sentiment set against this backdrop of disgruntled, laid off auto workers, So when those words were being said at the club, what was just a bunch of drunk guys yelling at each other turned racial. And so Vincent went over and according to Ebens and witness testimony, Vincent Chin actually threw the first punch. And then that led to a brawl And somehow a chair was thrown, Vincent ducked, the chair hit the back of Michael Nitz's head, the bouncers rushed over, everyone's trying to pull these guys off each other, they're kicked out of the club. And in the parking lot, Vincent still, according to court testimony, challenged Ronald Evans to continue the fight in the parking lot. And so that's when Evans goes to the car, him and his stepson open the trunk of the car and they pull out the baseball bat, which they used at the Amateur Baseball League, which they used for batting practice. And it is ironically a Jackie Robinson Louisville slugger. Vincent takes one look at the bat and realizes, okay, this is escalated. And so he runs off and then Jimmy, his friend, runs after him. Jimmy is of Chinese descent. His name is Jimmy Choi. He runs after Vincent. Gary and Bob, who are white, end up getting in the car and they race off to try to catch Vincent and Jimmy. In the meantime, Evans and Nitz get in the car and they drive off. So everyone's looking for Vincent. Vincent runs about maybe half a mile down the road to a nearby McDonald's. He's sitting on the curb outside the McDonald's parking lot. Jimmy comes up to him. They sit down, they catch their breath and they wait. Because they're hoping Bob and Gary are in the car trying to find them. Because back then, we didn't have cell phones. Yeah. Meet me here. They're just hoping that the car is heading in their direction. But unfortunately, the first car that pulls up is not Gary and Bob. It's Ronald Evans and Michael Nitz. And they also now have a passenger named Jimmy Perry, who was a young Black man in his early 20s, who happened to be walking down Woodward Avenue. As Evans and Nitz are driving by, they pull up to him and they ask him to help them. Now, this is the interesting thing because this is actually a very complicated case. There's a lot of misinformation. So according to Jimmy Perry's court testimony, he testified that the two men pulled up and asked him, we're looking for two Chinese guys. And Jimmy testified that he saw Vince Chin run down the street. So he pointed. He went in that direction. They said, get in the car. We'll give you $20 to help us find them. Now. Ronald Evans and Michael Nitz completely denied that story on the stand. In their court testimony, they said that did not happen. They deny giving him $20. They deny asking about two Chinese guys. Their side of the story was Michael Nitz's head was bleeding. He needed stitches because somehow the chair hit him against his head and he was bleeding. They were looking for a hospital. The hospital was just past the McDonald's. Gary and Bob also testified that they were still in the parking lot because they were scared. Because Ebens and Nitz actually took off first, and so Gary and Bob were going to their car to go. Oh gosh, we got to get to our friends before Ebens and Nitz do. They said in court testimony that Ebens and Nitz drove back because they thought maybe Vincent had come back to the parking lot.
0: So they went back to the Fancy Pants.
1: Yeah, and he wasn't there. So then they took off again. So for Gary and Bob and Jimmy, their testimony, they truly believe that. Ebens and Nitz did not cool down. Oh, yeah. And that they were still trying to find Vincent because they have testimony that they actually did come back to the club. And that was true.
0: So we're now back at McDonald's
1: with Vincent and Jimmy. So basically, Vincent and Jimmy are sitting outside the McDonald's and Ebens and Nitz are driving by. They see them. And according to court testimony, Ronald Ebens says, I saw them laughing and something snapped. And he pulls over the car so I think what's interesting is whether or not Jimmy Perry's story is true, whether or not it's actually Evans and Nitz's story is true, they pulled over.:
0: Yeah, they end up in the same place in
1: front of the McDonald's, and they were triggered by seeing Vincent laugh. Now, to this day, I do have to say, Ronald Evans has denied over and over on the record that he was racist. He denies what he did was racist. He says it was a horrible combination of too much to drink and toxic masculinity. But the reason why activists and the reason why the prosecutors stood by the story that they believe that this had racial implications is because you have to wonder, if Vincent and Jimmy were white, would they still have pulled over, seeing two white men laughing? Was there confirmation bias? Was there racist microaggression? Was there this confirmation bias of how Asian American men should act? They should be meek, they should not rock the boat, they should be demasculated. Those were the terrible racist stereotypes of Asian-American men back then. And Vincent defined all that. He was
0: an all-American guy. it sounds like these two stories are so separated. It's a case for first-degree murder versus manslaughter, right? If you believe Jimmy Perry, that he was picked up specifically to track down these two men, and if you believe Gary and Bob, who say, listen, we saw them return. They didn't cool down. They were clearly looking for him. That seems like premeditated, a planned action, versus we just randomly found them, and they were laughing, and I snapped because I was drunk. You summarized that beautifully, yes. And in fact, there was a first-degree murder charge. Okay, Ronald claims that he's been triggered. So what happens next?
1: They get out of the car. Ronald Ebens is still holding the bat. According to witnesses, he goes over and he hits him. Vincent tries to run. He runs into the middle of the street. According to witness testimony, Michael Nitz grabbed him, held him so Ronald Ebens could hit him again. There are differing witness accounts of exactly how many times he was hit, whether or not he was hit, but he was hit several times to the point that he went into a coma. Coincidentally, there were two police officers, two young Black police officers who were rookies that were working that night, Michael Gardenhire and Morris Cotton. They were both working there. They were moonlighting as security
0: At McDonald's? Yeah, at the McDonald's. Oh, wow. So the McDonald's, that McDonald's needed security in that area of Detroit? Yeah,
1: and they both had their guns. They were plain clothes, but they had their badges. So they rush over to try to stop it. They were able to stop Ronald Evans from delivering the final blow. And Evans dropped the bat. They both were arrested.
0: There's a crowd at McDonald's watching this happen? Yeah. And in fact, there was another witness that pulled over.
1: Wow. There was a crowd of people. It was maybe about a dozen or so. uh, Just enough people. And and that's a lot, you know, when this is happening. And it honestly, I think everything happens so fast. And it's hard because how do you go up to a man with a baseball bat?
0: Yeah, seriously. And
1: their police with their guns are drawn. It's a very, very volatile, incredibly brutal, violent and dangerous, dangerous situation. So then Jimmy runs over and Gary and Bob, meanwhile. They went in the other direction. So they never caught up with Vincent and Jimmy. They actually went back to the Golden Star restaurant because they thought somehow maybe Vincent had gotten back to where he worked that night. So they go to the restaurant. They're like, where's Vincent? And that was when the waiter at the restaurant said, you didn't hear? He's in the hospital. And their hearts dropped. Now let's go back to McDonald's. While Gary and Bob are driving in the car with the idea of let's go back to the restaurant because maybe he luckily ended up there. While they're driving to the Golden Star, Vincent is lying in Jimmy Choi's arms as the paramedics come over. And Jimmy testified in court that Vincent's last words to him before he slipped into a coma were, it's not fair. Mm. Jimmy got into the ambulance and they went to Henry Ford Hospital where doctors performed all night brain surgery trying to reduce the swelling in his head. And then what happened from there was he was in a coma for four days. Gary and Bob, meanwhile, are at the restaurant. They're told, your friend, he's at the hospital. Oh my God. They go over to the hospital. At this point, Lily's woken up by the owner of the restaurant saying, we got to go to the hospital. Vicky is told about this. By the time Gary and Bob get there, the family is there, plus a lot of friends. And they see their friend with his head shaved in the ICU. Then they can see the scar. It's railroad tracks against his bare skull where the bat hit him. I don't remember the exact amount, but he was hit in the shoulder, in the leg, in the arm, and in the head.
0: Because he was moving around so much. Exactly. He was in a coma
1: for four days. And there was a young surgeon at the time who then went to Lily and said, we did the best we could. He's brain dead. And four days later, they had to take him off life support. And so he was beaten into a coma on June 19th, 1982. June 23rd, 1982 is when they took him off life support. And then he was buried on June 29th, 1982, one day after the June 28th wedding was supposed to take place. And all the wedding guests went to the funeral instead of the wedding.
0: And his fiance, Vicky, must have just been devastated. How terrible. Yeah, I can't even imagine the pain. It breaks
1: my heart. And I mean, at the time that he was in a coma, they were getting wedding presents
0: were being delivered to the house. They were preparing for the wedding. In the meantime, we have Ronald and Michael who have been arrested. So they are now weighing first degree murder versus second degree versus manslaughter. Why do they initially land on first degree murder? It was premeditated because some time had gone by since they had been kicked out of the
1: club. My guess it was a half hour between when they got kicked out of the club and when the beating happened, one judge who heard all the witness statements when they were deliberating second-degree murder, he said they had enough time to let the blood cool down. Hmm. And so they ended up ruling it second-degree murder, but there was an interview with one of the judges, Thomas Bale, and he said, looking back, we should have stuck with first-degree. But at that point, it was second-degree murder, And Eben spent the night in that jail cell and Michael Mitz was released. He wrote a statement. He was released, went to get stitches at the hospital. His mom came to pick him up. The, The defense attorney showed up and got him out. Then from there, that's when the plea bargaining started. And then it was reduced to manslaughter. And it was reduced to manslaughter because there were no iPhones. There was no video surveillance cameras. It was definitely a he said, he said, she said thing. And a lot of people were drunk. It was late at night. You have a lot of unreliable witnesses. So they thought a second-degree murder trial is going to cost a lot of taxpayer money. It's going to take a lot of time. And it's going to be very, very hard to prove. It's a risky move if we do that. If we lower this to manslaughter, they'll definitely get jail time. Of course, because they're definitely guilty of anything at least manslaughter. So that's why they decided to do that, because they thought it would be a cut and dry case.
0: Did the phrase hate crime exist in legal jargon in 1982? No, it did not. So back then, we didn't have the
1: language back then to call it a hate crime. On March 16th, 1983, there was a hearing held in a Detroit courtroom under Judge Charles Kaufman. This was the manslaughter hearing for Ronald Evans and Michael Nitz. They were there, as were their defense attorneys. However, the prosecutor's office was physically unable to attend because they were overburdened with many other hearings. So unfortunately for Vincent Chin, the prosecutor's office was not able to attend that March 16th, 1983 hearing. So Judge Charles Kaufman had limited evidence. He just had what was presented before him. And in addition, Lily Chin's family was never told. That the hearing was taking place. So that's why they did not show up. Wow! So Judge Charles Kaufman is going over the limited information he has. And both men pled guilty to manslaughter and Ebens and Nitz expressed remorse for what they did. Judge Kaufman took one look at their records and realized they'd never been to jail before, never gotten into trouble before on the law. You know, at the time before the incident, Ronald Ebens was a foreman at Chrysler. He was in management. He too was living the American dream. At the time, Michael Nitz had just been laid off from Chrysler working the line, but he was working part-time at a furniture store and going back to college. And so Judge Kaufman looked at their family background, their work history, the fact that they had never been in trouble before with the law, and he was known as a merciful judge. So he said, let the punishment fit the criminal, not the crime. Mm. These two men aren't going to go out and do this again. So he gave them a fine of $3,000 each and he gave them both three years probation. And this shocked everyone because the reason why it got plea bargained down to manslaughter was everyone thought they're definitely guilty. They're going to plead guilty to manslaughter. It was such a violent crime. The nurse didn't even recognize Vincent Chin's face from his ID photo. Obviously, these guys are going to jail. And then Judge Kaufman says, quote unquote, let the punishment fit the criminal, not the crime. And they get probation. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody.
0: And he, you have so much leeway with manslaughter. He could probably have done anything. I don't know what the maximum, 15 years maybe?
1: It was zero to 15 years.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: And here's the thing. To this day, Ronald Ebens, and I have to say this. To this day, Ronald Ebens has denied in a court of law ever saying that. He basically says he doesn't remember.
0: He mm.
1: he basically blacked out. Yeah. He doesn't remember anything. After seeing Vincent laugh, something snapped. And the next thing he knows, he's holding a baseball bat. There's a gun in his face and there's a young man bleeding out on the pavement.
0: Do you believe that, that he blacked out?
1: I know the jury didn't in the first trial. They said that he was an unreliable witness and they said that he conveniently forgot things at the right moment. And so his testimony is part of why he was found guilty in the first trial. As for myself, I do believe that when you go into a rage, you do get tunnel vision. It's like what soldiers have to do when they get tunneled or police officers under attack, or when any of us are under attack or we lose our temper. Yeah, we do get tunnel vision, but do I believe it? So my job as a journalist is to be fair. I can't be objective. I have my own opinions, but I do think no matter what, I think it was obviously a tragedy. And I think we'll never know for sure. But at this point, it doesn't matter if we'll never know for sure. All we do know for sure was an innocent young man was killed in a violent rage and the justice was not served. Tell me about the reaction. When the Chinese American community found out and when Lily Chin found out what happened, Lily Chin was devastated. She didn't understand. She goes, they killed my son. Why are they not going to jail? And she herself even said, what if The two killers were Chinese and the victim was white. Yeah. Do you think they would have got the punishment fit the criminal, not the crime? Hmm, what does that really mean? So she wrote an angry letter to the Chinese Welfare Detroit Council and they got upset and they started having meetings. And this is when many Chinese American and also Asian American, Japanese, all Asian Americans, but specifically a lot of Chinese Americans, they started having meetings and they got upset and they said, this isn't right, this isn't fair. Many activists and attorneys and community members, they all got together along with Lily Chin and they decided they would fight back. They formed an ad hoc grassroots activist group that they called American Citizens for Justice. And then they started writing press releases. They started sending out flyers. They organized a huge rally in Detroit outside the courts in May of 1983. And it's estimated between 500 to 1,000 Asian Americans showed up, and also other diverse people, but a lot of Asian Americans showed up for that rally. And it was the first time anyone had seen that many Asian Americans in the heart of Detroit, because the Asian American community, you have to remember, was very small in Michigan. It was minuscule. I think barely 1% or somewhere between 1% to 3% of the population was Asian in Detroit and in Michigan, very, very tiny number. So it was really empowering and amazed to see all these Asian-Americans with picket signs saying justice for Vincent Chin. And in fact, all the downtown Chinatown Chinese restaurants, they shut down during their busiest hour where they make the most money, they shut down so the wait staff could go and protest. Wow. Because he was one of their own. But then what made Vincent Chin different and really put the Asian American movement on the map is that up until 1983, the term Asian American was not used very often. In 1968, two young Asian American Berkeley students at UC Berkeley coined the term Asian American out of solidarity with the Black Panther movement and the civil rights movement. And so in 1983, if you said Asian American, the people who knew that term would be, oh, you must be a college activist that's what those kids use. In the 1980s, you were Chinese American, you were Korean American, you were Filipino American, you were Indian American, you were Japanese American, you were not Asian American. All the different Asian countries and communities were their own little islands. So when Vincent Chin happened, and the Chinese American community protested, Jib Shimura who was an advocate and attorney, joined in. His family had been in Detroit for generations. He was Japanese-American and he had fought for reparations for the illegal incarceration of the Japanese-Americans. He was very involved, very politically involved in that. So he got involved, even though he's not Chinese, he's Japanese-American, but he said he felt solidarity with the Chinese-American movement. So did all the other Asian groups. So that's how Asian-American became a mainstream term. And the other beautiful thing that happened was the Black community in Detroit also got involved. Congressman John Conyers, Jesse Jackson, who was a presidential candidate at the time, they all got involved. And in fact, the Asian-American activists I interviewed said, we owe a debt of gratitude to the African-American community in Detroit because they helped our story go national. Wow. And in fact, Jesse Jackson became close friends with Lily Chen when the Atlanta spa shootings happened in March of 2021, Jesse Jackson, the next day, wrote a beautiful essay about it for the Chicago Sun-Times in which he talked about Vincent Chin and his dear friendship with Lily Chin and said, we're seeing the same thing happen in Atlanta and we have to uphold Vincent and Lily Chin's legacy. That was such a beautiful show of solidarity from the Black community. And so going back, This was a very diverse, this went from being not just an Asian American protest, but an all American protest because churches, synagogues, the Latino Latinx community, the Black community, everybody, everybody got involved. This started getting national attention. This became front page news across the country. When you watch the evening news with Dan Rather and Peter Jennings and Todd Broca, this was the top of the news story. And it went all the way to L.A. In fact, Asian-Americans in Los Angeles started reaching out to Detroit saying,
0: how can I help spread like wildfire? It's like a flashpoint, right, for a movement. Yeah, and
1: in fact, Asian-Americans across the country started protesting for Vincent Chin. San Francisco, Chicago, L.A., D.C., New York. There were similar protests across the country. No one had ever seen something like this before. And so because of that, the Department of Justice got involved. Lily Chin and a group of Asian American activists and lawyers, they went to D.C. to speak with the Department of Justice. That led to a federal investigation. So in November of 1983, Ronald Ebens and Michael Nitz were charged with violating Vincent Chin's civil rights on two counts, one count of conspiracy and one count of preventing Vincent Chin from using a place of public accommodation on account of his race. And that place of public accommodation was the Fancy Pants Club.
0: His civil rights were violated on account of his race. Did it work with Ronald and Michael?
1: So what happened was there was a trial in 1984. Both men were indicted on those two counts there was a federal trial and it was the first federal civil rights trial on behalf of an Asian American because in the 1980s, the ACLU did not consider Asians protected under the Civil Rights Act. Back then, racism was simply a black and white issue. So in 1984, Michael Nitz was cleared; He was acquitted of both counts. He was found not guilty because also he never held the bat. Okay. Ronald Evans was found guilty of one count of violating Vincent Chin's right to be in a place of public accommodation, Fancy Pants Club, on account of his race. So he was found guilty of that, sentenced to 25 years in jail. I interviewed the defense attorneys. They argued that there was a technical error. And the technical error was this. They claimed that three of the witnesses, Vincent Chin's best friends, Gary Koivu, Bob Swarovski, and Jimmy Choi, were coached. And so their testimony was corrupted. The U.S. Sixth Court of Appeals reviewed the case and they agreed. Wow. So they had to do the trial all over again. And this time because they moved the venue from Detroit to Cincinnati. So it was an all white, mostly male jury. And this time it was just enough to leave the door open, plant a seed of doubt in the jurors' minds. And so they ended up deciding to acquit Ronald Ebens, and they reversed the guilty verdict. So he was found not guilty. So to this day, legally, in a court of law, technically, Ronald Evans and Michael Nitz are technically, legally, not guilty of violating Vincent Chin's civil rights on account of his race. So at the end of the day, we lost. We lost the battle. But we did not lose the war because after that, Vincent Chin's name became a symbol Every time something anti-Asian happened, people would go, remember Vincent Chin? Don't let this happen again. This is when a lot of the Asian American community realized, like Lily, I came here not to rock the boat. I want to do the uh, American dream. And that's when a lot of uh, more conservative Asian Americans realized we have to have a voice. We have to start running for office. We have to go to law school and we have to get involved in the court system. We have to be activists in order to be really American which we are, we're 100% American, but nobody believes that. We're considered the perpetual foreigner. There's xenophobia, there's racism. We have to fight back. So a whole generation of Asian American lawyers and judges and politicians were inspired by Vincent Chin to go into public service, you know, all because of Vincent Chin. So that's why, even though we lost, we didn't really. I think that's the victory.
0: On the next episode of Wicked Words, Sarah Weinman on the killer who charmed a conservative icon. So I go there thinking it's just going to be typical professional correspondence between Edgar and Sophie. And then I start reading and my jaw drops because it's very much the opposite. But it was really important for me, and thus it's important for the listener and the reader to remember that This woman is engaging in this very inappropriate relationship with a man who she thinks that he didn't do it, but it's very possible, and of course now we know, he did murder a teenage girl. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold War Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold War Media production. The producer is Alexis Emerosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Our sound designer is Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hartstark, Karen Kilgareff and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldwarwicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.